Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The main event then, the United States and North Korea agreeing to seek complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula following a historic summit between President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Yet the accord set no deadline and left the path to disarmament undefined. The details are light. The headlines, impressive. Bloomberg, managing editor Dan Tenk joins us now from Singapore. Dan, the theatrics, the pictures, the photographs, the videos, they're all theatrical. It's what you expected. The details, though, what is the detail of this agreement, Dan? Well, there's there's not much in terms of substance in this agreement. Uh, most of what we saw today we've seen before, and in fact, it was a lot lighter than even uh, skeptics were hoping for. Um, complete denuclearization is a term that North Korea uses to suggest not only the removal of its own nuclear weapons, but also the nuclear weapons that the United States has in the region to protect uh, allies, South Korea and Japan. Um, so that alone um, suggests that Trump didn't get too much. Going into it, they kept talking about complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization, uh, which is uh, considered the gold standard among arms control experts. And that did not appear in, in the document that was signed. Do we have an accepted definition of what the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula means for the Koreans and for what it ultimately means for the United States as well? Because going into the summit, there were two different definitions of that phrase. Um, have we have got have we got an agreed definition of that phrase now, Dan? Uh, no, we don't. We just have that vague term. So really, um, what's going to happen in the next few weeks is, is Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is going to continue these negotiations. And, um, you know, it's it's that where they're apparently going to have to figure out what exactly is this process where you're going to have inspectors go in and dismantle this nuclear program. Right now, we, we still have no visibility on that uh, based on what we saw today. Within the, the ballet, what did you observe in Singapore? I mean, 5,000 media, all of it choreographed. It was amazing how the handshake came off so smoothly and all. But within the day-to-day -day grind of your Singapore, how did this summit go? Uh, it was very smooth. I mean, they didn't do much at all on Monday. And, and the big surprise event was really Kim Jong-un taking a, an evening stroll around the harbor front in Singapore, going to the rooftop of the Marina Bay Sands. Um, there were crowds of onlookers taking photos with him. This was all very spontaneous, and it made him, you know, he's taking selfies with the Singapore foreign minister. Um, you know, this makes him look like a, a normal leader who received applause. He received a, a warm welcome all around. So uh, from that perspective, this was a big win for Kim. Bloomberg Managing Editor Dan Tenkei joining us from Singapore. Um, Tom, you'd have to say, now compared to where we were a year ago, whether the president gave up too much, received very little, we're in a much better place than we were about six to 12 months ago, and that's for sure. There's no question about that. I will state as he is on Air Force One heading to Guam and across to Hawaii and then back on home that it appears he will be greeted, John Farrell, by a firestorm of discussion over these military exercises. Yeah. He treated them as, quote-unquote, war games. But we have heard on this program, in this studio, among others, Admiral James Stravitas, go over the importance, the 
tactical, physical importance of these military exercises. And you'd have to say, Tom, um, two happy parties about the ending of those military exercises, one of them being the North Koreans, yes. the other being the Chinese. <clears throat> this is probably exactly what the Chinese would have liked to have seen, and, uh, and they're getting it. I don't know. You know, I mentioned the going out of television, the tweet just out by Overland's Richard Haas, uh, where Ambassador Haas was gracious about the moment. Uh, but then really centered in again on these military exercises. Again, if you're just joining us and you saw the handshake last night about 9 p.m., John beautifully choreographed, I thought. Uh, the the idea uh, of, um, of just stating in a 70-minute press conference that the war games will end, that, that pretty much, John, came out of the blue, from what I could tell. You okay over there? What do you want? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Are you are are you um are working on your World Cup feed over there? No, I'm not. Lisa Collins joining us now, Center for Strategic okay. and International Studies, Career Chair. Um, Lisa, welcome to the program. Let's begin with Great. this historic summit that uh we've had overnight. How much has the president given up, and how significant is it? Well, I think it's a very significant concession that he's given up by agreeing to suspend the U.S.-South Korea military exercises. That's something that the, South, the North Koreans have been asking for for decades, something they consistently raised in previous negotiations, like at the six-party talks or even the 1994 Agreed Framework back during Clinton era. Um, and I think that this is something that previous U.S. administrations have known is not something that should be bargained away or should be used as a political tool for, uh, you know, for bargaining with the North Koreans. The military exercises are um, a necessary part of maintaining military readiness for our forces in the region and for protecting our South Korean allies and Japanese allies in the region. And so I think this is a huge concession that maybe Trump didn't even realize he was giving up. Now, Lisa Collins with us, and we will continue. Thrilled to have her uh, with us through the morning with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in, uh, in uh, Washington. Uh, we're enjoying uh, Shab Jalanus with us with Credit Suisse is, yes, we have international relations, the politics of Singapore. Thank you, Lisa Collins, for joining us there with terse uh, comments off of what we heard from President Trump. But also the backdrop is the litmus paper of the system, which is foreign exchange. Shab, is that still true? That, you know, I learned in my textbooks that foreign exchange is the, is the chemistry, is the litmus paper of the global financial system. Is that as true today as it was 20, 30, 40 years ago? I think it's it's still true. Uh, what's different now, maybe, is that uh, we have so much constant news flow that the market can react and price in events very efficiently, perhaps more efficiently than it could back then. Uh, and therefore, the reaction to events like, for example, this summit in Singapore can sometimes be somewhat muted because we've had so much time to think about it and understand all the different implications that could arise. And when nothing particularly surprising happens, you don't get much of a reaction. So I think that's that's why you get this type of price action <clears throat> compared to the yeah. past. I mean, John, it's almost like there's almost no news out there now. Yeah. So dollar drifts. Is drift the right so we word, just, we John? just focus on the theatrics all the time of foreign policy, and sometimes we miss the data point. I would say more important this morning for investors mm. was just to look at the small business optimism survey here in the United States. What did you see? I missed that. The second highest index reading in its 45-year history. Does that sound like American business is worried? 
No, but we've heard that. I mean, Drew Mattis yesterday got a huge response for his statement. But the fact of the matter is, whatever you think about these international events right now, Shahab, it just seems to me that here in the United States, domestically speaking, which is why we're talking about small companies, not big caps exposed to the international story, but domestically speaking, it looks like the United States is the best house on the street. That's still the case. And, uh, you know, even the political risk in the US, despite, you know, President Trump appearing to some to be a liability on that front, is still muted compared to most other major economies out there. Uh, So, for example, the UK, you have the Brexit debate. Europe just delivered the Italy story, which was a surprise for many, actually. Um, And, you know, clearly in, in emerging markets, you've got all kinds of different political uncertainties out there right now, which which do spill over into the economy. So that's why I think the US at this point looks looks better than the rest. Bank of America Merrill Lynch come out with that monthly survey that a lot of people look at, the fund manager survey. And in that survey this month, the theme is pretty clear. It's decoupling once again. The United States, people getting exposure to the US and trimming exposure to Europe and emerging markets. Are we decoupling here in the United States from the rest of the world? Are we moving from global synchronized growth to a world that's quite familiar? several years ago, which is the US doing great with struggles elsewhere. It doesn't have to be that. If, if you go back just a couple of months, in fact, uh, many market participants expected a synchronized global recovery. In fact, they expected, for example, Europe to perform so well uh, that the euro should go higher against the US dollar, even with the US's yield differential advantages that it has at this point in time. So. There, there was a surprise factor there where suddenly the numbers came off uh, in, in places like Europe mm-hmm. and, and other parts of the world. And actually, I think many economists still expect a bounce back in those numbers. So this uh, desynchronized growth <clears throat> outlook that we have at this point in time need not necessarily persist. But the heart of all of this analysis is gaming central banks. And the central banks are gaming inflation and the vector, the first and second derivatives of inflation. What are they right now? You mean, what, what is Mr. Powell's summary? He's sitting at his desk. He's got his Bloomberg next to him. We know that. He's, uh, John, Chairman Powell's constantly on his Bloomberg looking at the dots. But what does a single sheet of paper on his desk about inflation actually say? Well, look, I think, I think the, the bigger issue there is that although the inflation level is you know, at an acceptable level and certainly much higher than, let's say, Europe or Japan's inflation level, the flattening yield curve is sending a different message, which is that uh, the level of rates is, is that's priced in right now for let's say the next of the end of next year is already high enough, you know, given the longer term decline in potentially you know potential growth and other factors that the market's concerned about. So I think that's that's the issue here. It's not really where is inflation right now. It's what level of rates can the market tolerate before it starts to worry right. about but more disinflation in the future. That's we're, we're doing central bank analysis by guess, by forecast, right? Well, I think even the central bank, frankly, is doing that. If you think about the debate that's ongoing at this point around what is the, the real neutral rate at this point in time, how much has right. that changed, how high above it can you go before you risk uh, a deleveraging concern in the, in the global <clears throat> economy. Right. Uh, these are all things that, uh, that are being debated constantly. And I don't think right. there's going to be a, an answer to that quickly. We were talking about Panama yesterday in the World Cup. Has Iran got a chance? I think so. I think, you know, the, it, based on... Uh, the very low probabilities <laughs> that, that the market's describing. First you know, game Friday. If, if Leicester City can win the Premier League, I think Iran can There we go. What's, what's oh. the first game Friday? Morocco? Uh, yes, Morocco, exactly. Big yeah, game on yeah. Friday. That's so what happens there. to Shahab when, when kickoffs, what, 11, 
11 a.m. on Friday? Yeah, you know, I've, I've got. Do, does, credit Suisse, sure. does, does, does Credit Suisse lose their FX well, strategist? I've, I've also got to watch England on Monday. You see, it's the problem with uh, <laughs> having a foot in multiple countries. You mentioned earlier Spain yeah. is going to do better. I mean, you know. That's, that's just the gut here. feel, to be honest with you. Why yeah. is Spain going to do better? We're going to cover this in detail. Yeah, Spain... Full team coverage in about seven minutes, folks. Yeah, I actually don't think <clears> any <throat> particular country has a standout strong team this time. Jude region? So yeah, I would go with yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why my, my, I'm just going with my gut feel, which is Spain. I can't. There's no analysis involved there. My gut feel <laughs> is the United States of America is not in it. In I thought you were supporting is. Nigeria. I thought that was your. No, team. I'm supporting Nigeria because I have a memory from eight or twelve years ago that it was fun watching them. You know, for an American. No, because it is fun watching. No, but come on. They're like the Washington Capitals. They come down the ice and they shoot the puck. Yeah. Nigeria, there's none of this pussyfooting around. Ni Ni Nigeria comes down the field and they kick the ball. They've got a great that's jersey. That's what Americans want. They've got a want. great jersey yeah, yeah, this summer. Into. So yeah. I'm going to get you the Nigeria, oh, excuse me. I'm gonna get you the Nigeria it's jersey. It's a kit. Well, I just, I'm speaking in your language. A kit. But I'm going to get you the shirt, okay? Thank we would you. call it the shirt. I'm going to get kit. you the Nigeria shirt, okay? <clears throat> I can't see you fully kitted out with the socks, shorts and... And, and Jersey as well. Uh, we have had some terrific guests that we hope are giving you perspective away from the basics of Korea. And one of them is Catherine H.S. Moon, uh, Senior Fellow uh, for Foreign Policy, the Center for East Asia Policy Studies as well. Catherine, thank you so much for being with us on a busy day. Let me begin with what we've seen through the morning and what our audience has heard through the morning with what this moment means for South Korea. We've heard too little about it. How does Seoul respond to what we've seen? Well, President Moon Jae-in of South Korea has declared that he's very, very happy and, and considers the summit so far a success. Um, I think the South Korean public will feel good about it, except there's a problem. President Trump offered to cease joint military exercises, training exercises that are held regularly throughout the year with South Korea as part of the alliance. This was a unilaterally... Yeah made statement. And this has surprised the DOD in the U.S. as well as South Korea. The government is basically saying they're going to have to get clarity from um, the U.S. about this statement. So that is really unexpected and um, uh, way too much right. given to Mr. Kim. I, I mean, you came out of the Smith College Princeton Combine. You're teaching up at Wellesley now. You're going to walk into your class tomorrow. And within your international relations, you have to bring in the military of the United States of America. How will the Pentagon respond to what the president, it seems, almost ad hoc said within his press conference? Well, I have a simple answer to that, which is that the Pentagon, as far as the U.S. military command in South Korea goes, the spokesperson already said very, very clearly and early on that they will proceed as usual. Yeah. They've gotten no commands. And so they're training to get ready for the August military exercise. I mean, I mean, this is, uh, Professor Moon, this is absolutely critical in that we have heard this from Admiral Stravitas and others over. He's at a school north, northeast of Wellesley called Tufts. Um, and Admiral Stravitas has said very simply uh, that this, these are command orders, aren't they? Right, right. No, this is, this is, um, it's a bit, to me, this is a little nuts, uh, frankly. Um, and, uh, 
the defense minister Mattis on Monday, the eve of the summit, had already said that the military exercises are not on the table for negotiations. And then President Trump just offered it up. Kathy, are we in a better position now on the peninsula than we were 12 months ago? Uh, well, yes. If we don't want war, this is a very, very good development relative to war or fire and fury and other kind of rhetoric like that. So the big picture, yes. However, uh, there isn't much there there in the joint statement. And, uh, for example, the U.S. promises um, to give North Korea security assurances and et cetera, but North Korea promises to proceed with the declared denuclearization intention of April when Kim met with Moon. However, North Koreans have not even presented a recommitment to continuing yeah. the freeze on nuclear testing and missile testing. Kathy, I mean, we could have at, at minimum gotten that. Would you say the world is more secure now than 12 months ago? Uh, I would say uh, we are not on a road to war, so therefore secure, but quite insecure in terms of what is to come after this meeting. <clears throat> Well, what's what's the greeting the president's going to get back in Washington? I mean, we mentioned Pentagon earlier, but, you know, you see the back and forth between any executive branch officer and the legislative branch. How will this be received in Washington? I think uh, members of Congress will want to get clarification, like many people around the world, um, because it's so vague. What happened is so vague, and the U.S. seems to have offered more, uh, at least verbally, um, the other reality, though, is that the joint statement is not a legally binding statement. So Trump doesn't have to abide by any of it, and, and neither does uh, Kim. You know, one thing I want to bring up is uh, China. I found it really striking that when Trump was taking questions from the media, um, he thanked President Xi and all the other dignitaries of East Asian countries uh, relevant there. But he said that he is grateful to President Xi for having enforced so tightly the sanctions. And then he says, but not so much in the last two months, but that's okay. That's what he says, but that's okay. So I was stunned that he is signaling to China and to other countries that loosening of sanctions, that not abiding by them, uh, is okay. And the U.S. doesn't have much leverage um, except the sanctions that the Chinese can employ. Well, Kathy, let's talk about the Chinese role in all of this. Do you think the Chinese and President Xi Jinping will be happy with the outcome of the summit? I think for now, because the Chinese uh, wanted exactly what uh, Trump offered, which is to cease U.S. military exercises in South Korea in return for a freeze of nuclear uh, and missile testing, et cetera. Um, But in some ways, China got what it wanted. The North Koreans got so much, uh, just meeting Trump, getting the coverage worldwide. Yeah. And not having to commit to anything specific. Kathy, it would be incredibly difficult to make a judgment call after one summit with a lot of theatrics. This is going to take months, maybe even years for this to play out. But as you see things at the moment, your base case, the sphere of influence that the, the North Koreans fall into, is it towards the South, towards the United States, or is it towards China? Oh, I think it's none of the above. North Korea does not dance to other countries' tune. It dances to its own. So right now, I think North Korea, Kim, is doing a really superb job uh, doing diplomacy politics with the South Koreans, with the Chinese, with the Americans. Uh, He's willing to dance with everybody right now and with the Russians. 
And I'm sure he's going to extend that dance card to the Japanese as well. Kathy Moon, really thoughtful stuff, and we really appreciate your time on this program from the Brookings Institution Centre for East Asia Policy Studies. Um, Kathy Moon. We've got a fantastic interview coming to us from Berlin, Tom Keane, unexpected. Yes. Angal Guria, the OECD <coughs> Secretary General, just popping into the Berlin studio and he joins us from Berlin, Germany. Angal, good morning to you, sir. Good afternoon to you over there and thank you very much for joining us. Let's just talk about your meeting with uh, Chancellor Merkel in Berlin. Huge reversal, seemingly, in, in US-German relations over the last year. Just what kind of position is Chancellor Merkel in and what has she told you? Well, uh, uh, Chancellor uh, Merkel is uh, always um, activistic, uh, and she's always uh, pragmatic and she's always working towards um, a greater cooperation. So uh, I think we, what we did, together with the heads of the IMF, together with the or head of the World Bank, of the International Labour Organization and the uh, World Trade Organization, myself, uh, we all talked about uh, uh, in each of our domains uh, how we could uh, work with multilateralism and how we could promote globalization. And at the same time, we had the head of the African Development Bank, so we focused a lot on uh, cooperation with Africa. The domain of Mexico is something that you have grown up with, and you have now seen the tests by the domain of Trump, whether it's NAFTA, Mexico, what we've seen with Canada coming out of Quebec, and of course with your conversation with Chancellor Merkel uh, today. These domains are under attack from a unique president. How should they respond to Donald Trump? Well, I think these are different uh, uh, circumstances. In the case of Mexico, which you mentioned, what we're going to have an election on the 1st of July. Uh, and uh, there's still, so there's still, you know, three weeks of uh, campaigning to do. Um, and the questions uh, in vis-a-vis the United States depend a lot on uh, NAFTA. How will NAFTA uh, it develop how will NAFTA end up in terms of the negotiation, but there are also issues of security, issues of migration. There are issues of, uh, you know, the, the not 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 just uh, trade, but also uh, the the dealing of uh, drugs and arms that come from the south and go into consumption in the United States, and then the arms flow uh, coming from the United States into Mexico. So there are a number of issues. Uh, that the, the bilateral relationship requires. When it comes to, uh, well, for example, the, the G7 meeting, of course, uh, uh, that was mostly uh, a, a, um, uh, an issue that uh, was brought up in terms of the communique at the end. It was mostly about trade, uh, to some extent, climate. Yeah. And, then, and then last but, but not least, uh, in the case, uh, in the particular case about uh, Canada, uh, well, it was about whatever this encounter happened because of the, uh, the, the communique. Angel, in some ways in Europe, there is a protectionist wall creating barriers to entry for, for many people to get into the European market, the auto market being one of them. Are the Europeans realising that they need to remove some of those tariffs on, on auto imports in order to appease the president here in the United States? I don't think that uh, anybody is doing uh, anything to appease anybody else. But I think uh, the question is that you realize that more and more the barriers of trade have to come down 
in order for everybody to capture the benefits of trade. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's an important question, Angel, but I just wonder whether the Europeans themselves are aware that that's got to happen, that they themselves have barriers to entry that need to come down. I, I think that more and more... Uh, there is a, a common understanding that this has to happen. And then there's a question of uh, time and uh, speed and then the specificity about which and where and what sectors. But my, my as I said before, my impression is this is a world in which these tariffs have to come down, continue to come down, eventually disappear. They're already very low. Right. They're already very low and they're coming down further all the time. And now with your experience at OECD and the other public service tasks you've taken for your nation of Mexico, you visited South Korea many times. How will the South Koreans respond to what we saw in the last 24 hours in Singapore? It has to be good. It has to be positive. I have myself been in the in the special economic zone, you know, on the, on the north. Um, and I can only tell you that uh, the potential there for complementarities, uh, the potential there for, uh, uh, you know, transforming uh, North Korea into a very important, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, complement to the capacity, uh, not only of South Korea, but also of the whole of the world is very great. So uh, I think it, it, whatever happened today, it's not, it's good not only for security issues, but uh, for the future of the world. And Algeria, thank you so much. From our studios in Berlin, he is the fifth Secretary General of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, uh, of course, out of Paris as well. John, that's one of the big Bloomberg advantages. Out of the blue. Yeah, and Algeria meets with Chancellor Merkel <coughs> and thinks, wanna, you know what, you we'll know, go on Bloomberg surveillance for a couple you know, of minutes. He wants to come on, and we're thrilled by that, and that's yeah. lots of work by our team over at the years. Uh, but that, it's wonderful to hear from him and... There's just so much news, so we could have spent an hour there alone on Mexico and the elections coming up. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.